Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing this morning? This is a lovely Father's Day. Are you out there? <laughs> My glasses foggy. Okay, I'm going to believe you. Hey, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me uh, to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, if you're a guest with us today, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Aliens. Uh, it's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church, explaining to them that because of their faith in Christ, because of their reverence for God, their desire to obey God, that they were going to be sometimes misunderstood by the culture around them and viewed as a strange, even alien people. Last week, we saw Peter address the whole issue of anxiety, essentially saying to Christians, listen, no matter what happens to you, no matter, no matter the challenges you face, the fears that you have, know that God loves you tenaciously, and that'll never change. So act responsibly in your life and in your relationships, but when circumstances move beyond your control, Peter says, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. In other words, trust him, and by faith, accept his gracious, sovereign care. Now, what's interesting is that the very next topic Peter addresses could very easily be one that raises our anxiety. Certainly, that's not Peter's intention. Uh, the warning he's about to give isn't something we should freak out about, but it is something we need to discuss and take seriously. He writes this in verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Let's pray together. Our Father, I ask this morning that as we spend this time together that you would remove any obstacles, any, um, anything that would cause us to miss what you have to say to us and the truth of your word today. Um, we ask that only you alone would reign in this place with your people. Let's pray this prayer together. This is the prayer Jesus told his followers to pray. Let's, let's read it out loud, shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's been known by many names, Lucifer, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, the dragon, the evil one. But generally speaking, the enemy of God is most commonly known as the devil, or Satan, which literally means adversary. His evil legacy has been woven into the fabric of history, and over the centuries, humanity has struggled to render a precise portrait of this, this being and decide whether or not he even exists. Current research indicates that um, somewhere between 60 and 70% of Americans believe that he does. Some of those who refuse to believe chalk the whole idea up to antiquated superstition. Secularists ridicule the notion of supernatural demonic forces in our world, arguing that when you look at the problems of humanity, all, all there is is what you see. Um, so they assert that better schools, right education, good therapy, effective legislation, more government policies, fairer economics can deal with and solve the evils of our society. And yet, none of those things seem to be working very well. 
there are a lot of religious people who, while affirming the existence of God, also refuse to believe in the devil. Many of them accept uh, what Jesus had to say about good supernatural forces, but not evil supernatural forces, which is really quite inconsistent. It's just an arbitrary picking and choosing to believe what they feel comfortable with or what they like versus embracing the totality of Jesus' teaching. Whatever the case, the devil remains a very popular topic within contemporary American culture. I don't know how many of you heard about this, but just last month, a group of Harvard students planned to host a satanic black mass on the campus, a university campus led by members of the satanic temple out of New York City. Uh, The event was canceled at the last moment with Harvard President Drew Faust calling it uh, abhorrent and then 60,000 people signing a petition to stop the ritual from being performed. Um, In a recent interview with New York Magazine, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia told journalist uh, Jennifer Sr. that he believes in the devil. And uh, when she responded, you do, Scalia said, of course I believe. You're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Devil, most of mankind has believed for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or I have believed in the devil. And Scalia is right. A lot of very intelligent, highly educated people have and still do believe in the existence of the devil. And just for the record, all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation teaches that he's real. Uh, The apostles John, Peter, Paul, James, Matthew, Mark, Luke all agree on it. Jesus certainly taught the devil is real, told us to pray about it. And then here in his letter, Peter affirms that the forces of darkness are a sobering reality in our world. What do you believe? It's been said, for those who believe, no explanation is necessary. But for those who don't believe, no explanation is possible. So rather than trying to prove the devil's existence to you, I want to focus our attention on what Peter has to say here in chapter 5 of his letter because he doesn't argue the point. He simply assumes his readers understand the truth. As I said before, he's known by a lot of names, but Peter refers to him as your enemy, the devil, a roaring lion, portraying him as a spiritual predator out to destroy whatever and whoever he can. And so Peter offers God's people advice on how to deal with him. It's sort of an anti-predator strategy, if you will, one requiring first and foremost that, that we be informed. Uh, Peter begins by providing some important insight. You know, based on what he writes, we know that when we're talking about the devil, we're talking about a personal spiritual being who is around at the dawn of creation. What we know of his origin comes from various scripture texts. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are two particular texts, uh, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that describes this supernatural being as a once high-ranking angel in um, in service to God, so beautifully created it became enamored with itself and arrogantly rebelled against its creator's authority. Its downfall came when it said, I will ascend uh, above the clouds. I will raise my throne above God. I will make myself like the Most High. This once faithful servant became literally God's Satan, his adversary, and ever since has been seeking to destroy all that is good and right and true. Legions of angels rebelled with him, and now these demonic entities serve him and do his evil bidding. Like it or not, admit it or not, believe it or not, 
We're caught up in the midst of a cosmic spiritual struggle between good and evil, the struggle for the souls of uh, the soul of humanity. Scripture teaches that the devil is indeed real. He exhibits personal attributes, intellect, emotion, will. He exhibits acts of personality, he speaks, tempts, schemes, accuses, deceives, slanders, hates, and if possible, devastates lives. In terms of power, uh, the devil is limited. While his abilities are supernatural, he is not God's equal. But to underestimate his power is a mistake we can't afford. He's able to perform miracles, establish empires, empower dictators, trigger epidemics, fuel anger, incite violence, shape and influence human lives. On the other hand, uh, we don't need to overestimate his power. Uh, God is the creator. Satan is a creature. God is eternal. Satan has a beginning and will have an end. God knows everything. He's omniscient. Satan does not. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Satan can only be in one place at a time. And while he is free to roam the earth, he definitely has limitations. What's he doing roaming the earth? His purpose is to destroy, to devastate God's creation in whatever way possible, soliciting worship, propagating lies, seducing humanity, sabotaging God's church and God's mission in the world. He detests the truth, righteousness, purity, humility, unity, and thrives on deception, perversion, immorality, pride, and division. Ultimately, the devil hates what God loves, especially human beings. And one final piece of information to keep in mind has to do with his prospects for the future, which, which aren't good. In short, the enemy is doomed. The battle may be vicious, but the outcome is sure. God will have the final say, and the adversary and his minions will be cast into eternal judgment. It's just a matter of time. So being informed is critical, but it's not enough. Peter says we also have to be alert and of sober mind. Translation, we need to pay attention and think clearly. Why? Because Peter says, because your enemy, the, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And the nuance of the Greek verb that's used here implies a present and continuous prowling. Because supernatural beings don't sleep, they don't nod off, they don't take naps, they don't take breaks. Peter's talking about an insatiable spiritual predator who is relentlessly on the hunt. I don't know how, how many of you ever watch the Animal Planet or Discovery Channel. I'm kind of a junkie on those things. And uh, every now and then they'll have a show about like the lions of the Serengeti or something. And I'm, I'm immediately watching it. Uh, and whenever they talk about lions, it's fascinating. When a lion, a hungry lion stalks its prey, you know what it looks for? It looks for the young, the weak, the isolated, the wounded, the oblivious. And when it locks on a target, the attack is swift, it's brutal, it's lethal. And you think about it here, Peter's been, in his letter, pressing the idea of the church being the flock of God. You know, we're his sheep. And he continues the analogy, suggesting that sheep, sheep who refuse to be shepherded, sheep who are arrogant, sheep who anxiously wander off on their own, not paying attention to the dangers around them, are at risk of being preyed upon and swallowed whole, because that's what the Greek word devour means. The risk is real. We often like to joke about the devil, characterizing him in red leotards and having horns and a pitchfork. Why do we do that? 
I, I think it's because it makes him manageable for us. You know, he, he's not such a threat when we, when we make fun of him, when we characterize him. But it's no joke. The enemy is a threat, a serious one. He is a voracious hunter, an expert at tracking and baiting prey. Sometimes the bait is money. Sometimes it's sex, drugs, fame, power, prestige, image, possessions. Rarely is the bait rotten or ugly. It's usually very attractive and seductive, appealing to our prideful sense of entitlement. When stalking, the, the devil camouflages himself quite well. It's not in his best interest to be identified or to come out in the open. Instead, he stealthily prowls, stalks, and studies his prey carefully. In the Old Testament, there's a book about a guy named Job who we're told, who we're told was, a, as a, was a good, godly man, loved God. And when you read his story, you find that the enemy knew everything about Job, knew his name, his family, where he lived, what he did for a living, his income, what was important to him, what he liked, what he didn't like. And it's fascinating that throughout the book, Job never mentions Satan. But Satan mentions Job relentlessly. What does that tell me? It tells me that if you're a lover of God, faithfully pursuing what is right and good and, and, and worshiping him, the enemy knows who you are. He knows your name, your family, where you live, what you do, what you like, what you don't like. He knows this church, our strengths, our weaknesses. And if he knows us, he will attack us. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, okay? I, I'm not wigging out on this stuff. I'm not suggesting we start seeing, seeing demons and, and act, demonic activity behind every event. I'm, I'm not suggesting we blame all of our problems on the devil. He doesn't deserve that much credit, to be frank about it. The fact is, given my own sinful inclinations, I'm quite capable of messing up my life without anybody's help. Thank you very much. You know? So, uh, in fact, some of us are off the enemy's target list because we're sufficiently self-destructive. So, um, but, but make no mistake about it. I mean, if he has to, he won't hesitate to come after us. He went after Jesus. And here's the deal. Any notion that the devil is on the side of those who oppose God is false. He may use such people, but his goal is to destroy them too. He feeds unbelievers and unbelievers alike. He has no allies, no friends. He's loyal only to himself. He is an arrogant, complex, multifaceted, powerful, evil predator. And Peter says, take him seriously. Be alert. Think clearly. And be strategic. He says, stand firm. Uh, resist him, standing firm in the faith. And, you know, in order to, to understand what Peter means by this resisting and standing firm, I think we first need to recognize that the devil is all about deceit. Um, Jesus said he's been a liar from the beginning. He, Jesus called him the father of lies. It's what he does best. It's arguably his greatest weapon against us. And at the risk of oversimplifying complex spiritual reality, let, let me suggest that satanic lies come at us in two basic ways, by way of temptation and by way of accusation. And they work together. Temptation is where the enemy deceives us into, into taking sin too lightly. He assures us it's not that bad. 
doing the opposite of what God says is right and good and safe and healthy and best for you, so what? So what? He's just a big divine killjoy. So you take some money that, that's not yours. You deserve it. So you cheat on your taxes. So what? It's the government for God's sake. So you don't give generously to your church. You worked hard for that money. It's yours. Use it like you want. So you tell a little lie now and then to get what you want or to get even with someone you don't like. Who's going to know? So you have sex with someone other than your spouse. So you're promiscuous in your relational life. What's the big deal? Everybody does it. Everybody wants to do it. So you go out with your friends, you get totally blottoed, you know, do some foolish things. Who cares? It's fun. People will get over it. You'll get out of it. You, you can repent later, right? You can always be forgiven. See, temptations, temptation represents a myriad of lies by which the enemy gets us to take sin too lightly. Once we do and act on it, then the tempter becomes the accuser and through the lies of accusation, gets us to take sin too heavily. On the way in, he whispers, you can always be forgiven. But once you're in, he snarls, why would anyone forgive you? What were you thinking? You sick, twisted, perverted, selfish, greedy, lying, abusive, unlovable, worthless piece of human trash. You're a loser. It's over. God's never going to forgive you for what you've done. Oh, yeah, wait, you call yourself a Christian? Really, after what you've done, what you just did? Do you really think he is going to let you go unpunished? When we suffer, the enemy says, see how much he cares? Curse him. And when we do, he says, he's never going to love you now. When we're angry and we blow up, the enemy says, it's righteous anger. You let that person have it. And you hold on to that bitterness. Don't ever let it go. Don't ever let that happen again. And when we do, he says, you are a rotten person. That's why Paul says to the church, don't harbor anger. Don't give the enemy a foothold. You see how it works? See how the lies of temptation and accusation are powerful weapons. It's a, it's a diabolical one-two punch. I mean, the first one sets you up, the second one knocks you out. The enemy tempts in order to accuse. He wants to lure you to sin because it's destructive to your life and to your relationships, but also he wants you to sin so then he can keep you from accepting and experiencing the love and grace of God. I mean, think about it. Here in chapter 5 of his letter, Peter has just talked about what? He's talked about pride and anxiety. Well, temptation appeals to our pride, and accusation fuels our anxiety. And the, ult- the, 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 the enemy uses those things, because ultimately the devil wants human beings to sin so he can attack our conscience and keep men and women from believing that God will graciously forgive them, or or at the very least get them to think that forgiveness is based on their performance, because the thing is they will never perform up to snuff. They'll always fail that test. For us in the church, if he can get us to, to question or doubt what is true for us in Jesus, he can ruin our lives. He can't take away our inheritance. He can't take away our salvation, but he can steal our joy. He can steal our peace our sense of God's love and presence. 
rendering, rendering us guilt-ridden, isolated, and ineffective. And if he can, you know, you know, with that one mistake, that one sin, he will convince you that God is not pleased with you now. So you shouldn't pray. He doesn't want to hear from you. You shouldn't serve. No one needs your help. You shouldn't give. You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't even be here. Why are you here? And he'll convince you to stay away from community, to run from the very community that you need. He uses our past against us, reminding us what we've done, crushing us with shame, paralyzing us with regret. His voice rings in our ears. Maybe God's forgiven you, maybe he hasn't. Whatever the case, think of what you could have been. Think what, what you could have done. You see, the devil knows and exploits our weaknesses. And that one recurring sin that we struggle with, it allows him to say, you're no different than you ever were. You're just kidding yourself. A true Christian wouldn't do what you just did. Certainly not keep doing it. You call yourself a follower of Jesus. How dare you utter his name with your mouth? Understand, the enemy has been tempting and accusing and devouring people for a long, long time. He knows what he's doing, and he will attack you. And Peter's saying, just be alert to that reality. Think clearly and be strategic. Resist him and stand firm in the faith. Here's my Ray K translation of that. Don't be afraid. Hold your ground. Never give in. Don't think a small surrender will get the devil off your case. It won't. For every inch you give him, he'll try to take a mile. Resist and stand firm. But what does that mean? What does that mean? How do we do it? Well, Jesus showed us. Remember, Jesus had his own encounter with Satan, right? The enemy pursued him into the wilderness, tempted him to sin. Uh, he didn't assign Jesus to some demonic assistant the way he does with most of us. Satan took Jesus as his personal project. He went and offered him satisfaction for his physical hunger. He enticed Jesus with power and prestige, uh, offering what was not his to give. He used his best weapons and tactics. He lied. But Jesus was inf informed and alert, thinking clearly. He recognized the enemy's approach and steadfastly resisted every offer, every bribe, every temptation. And here's the deal. Jesus didn't reason with the enemy. He didn't argue with them. Jesus simply responded with direct quotes from Scripture. What does that tell us? It tells us that our best defense against the influence of satanic lies is the truth. The truth. Jesus knew that. He exemplified it. See, with the devil, we don't, we don't need rituals, incantations, candles, garlic necklaces, or exorcisms. We, we simply need to know, embrace, and affirm what is true. Because the enemy can't stand it, can't stand the truth. He flees from it, the truth of God's love, the truth of Christ's perfect sacrifice, the truth of the resurrection, the truth of forgiveness, the truth of divine grace. Understand, your truth is, is, is our greatest weapon against the adversary. Do you know the truth? Do you know Scripture well enough to have a response ready in the face of temptation and accusation? See, that's why we study the Scripture. We don't do it just to be biblical scholars 
or so we can get an all high and mighty attitude about how much theology we, re we can regurgitate. No. Whether on your own, with a friend, in a life group, in a class, we study the Word of God and we encourage our people to study the Word of God because when we know the truth, we can stand firmly in it and we resist the lies of the enemy. Trust me when I tell you, biblical illiteracy doesn't make you ignorant, it makes you vulnerable. And the devil banks on it. Do you know what's true? Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Apostle Paul affirms, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son to be a sin offering. No condemnation for those in Christ. When writing a young pastor named Timothy, Paul said, Timothy, know the truth and escape from the trap of the devil. The apostle John wrote Christians in the church, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what does Peter tell us in his letter? Peter says, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You're, you're getting the point here, right? I mean, Peter, Peter's a guy who knew about temptation, accusation, guilt, shame, failure. And he's saying, look, trust me, from experience, I'm telling you that the way we can resist the devil and stand firm in faith is by knowing, embracing, and affirming truth. At the end of verse 9, he writes, the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of persecution. Here's my Ray Case translation of that. He's saying, you're not alone in all this. You're not alone in this. Sometimes that's, how, that's what we think. Sometimes that's how we feel. We're alone in our suffering, alone in our persecution, alone in our struggles, alone in our temptations and sin. Peter says, no. The spiritual battle against evil is everywhere. It assaults everyone. You're not alone. And I don't know, for me, that's helpful. This past February, Hollywood released a new film about the life of Jesus titled Son of God. Anybody see it? Anybody see it? Uh, I don't think I need to issue a spoiler alert here. I, 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 most of us know the story. Yeah, we're familiar with the biblical narrative. But uh, what's interesting about the film is that the most cunning, controversial, and diabolical character in that biblical narrative plays no role in the movie, makes no appearance on screen. In other words, the producers left God's evil adversary on the cutting room floor, which caused Time Magazine to ask, where'd he go and why? Is Satan dead? In other words, is he irrelevant? The film's executive producer, Roma Downey, answered the question this way. She said, I wanted all the focus to be on Jesus. I want his name to be on the lips of everyone who sees this movie. So we cast Satan out. Fair enough. Some people were all up in arms about it. But uh, look, filmmakers have artistic license to tell a story in whatever way they want. But 
While the adversary is left out of the film, it would be a naive and serious error for anyone to think that he has somehow left the world stage. He has not. His evil presence and influence remains. As, and as a Christian author and thinker, C.S. Lewis explained, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humans can fall about the devil. One is to either disbelieve in his existence, the other is to believe and feel an excessive unhealthy interest in him. He is equally pleased by both errors. Listen, I assure you, the devil is on the prowl and he is a, an experienced predator. He knows who you are, your strengths, your weaknesses. He knows this church. And as Christians, we shouldn't dismiss him, underestimate or preoccupy ourselves with him, but it's, it is important we be informed, be alert, strategic, fearless. Peter's warning may be startling, even frightening to some people, but for followers of Jesus, there's no need to worry. We can resist the enemy and stand firm in faith because we know the truth, the truth of God's love, the truth of God's grace, his forgiveness, his promise of eternal life granted to us through Jesus. As the Apostle Paul put it, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And in all things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Because that is the truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, my, my guess is that for all of us in this room, uh, intellectually, uh, we, we affirm that life around us is more than just what we can touch and smell and taste and see. That there is a spiritual world around us. And there's a, there's a, there's a struggle going on between good and evil, and most of us acknowledge it intellectually, and yet we live our lives practically as if it's not true. Our lives focus on the physical, on what we experience in this life, uh, and often overlook the subtleties uh, of spiritual reality. In doing that, we make ourselves targets. We also sometimes fail to recognize and rehearse in our minds and our lives what is true, what you say is right and good and healthy and best for us. We forget what has been done for us. We separate ourselves from one another. We, we isolate. Um, and in our, in our being oblivious and our being isolated and being weak and understanding what's true, we make ourselves extremely vulnerable to attack. And so I pray that you would protect your people today. And I pray that each of us would acknowledge what is true. That Jesus has come and lived the life we could never live. Died the death we deserve to die. And graciously gives us life when we believe. That is the truth. The truth of your grace. And in it we stand today. We resist and we stand in Jesus' name, amen.
I want to thank you guys for being being with us this morning. And um, you know, the whole idea of lies is what keeps people from from God. You know, and religion is is basically a lie. Religion says either you're not good enough, uh, or you can be good enough if you just work hard at it. But that's straight from the pit, folks. And it's going to keep you from God because the harder you try, the more you realize you fail. And it just debilitates you, discourages you. It will knock you down and drag you out and, and pull you away from God. The, the, the true message of the gospel is the gospel of grace. There's nothing that you can do. Jesus came and lived the life you and I could never live. He died the death we deserve to die in order to bring us to God. And it's through our faith in him by grace that we are rescued and we're given life. That's the truth. In fact, right at the end of the letter, Peter says, Peter says, it is the God, God is the God of grace. And this is the truth, the grace of God. Stand in it, he says. Stand in it. So, um, in fact, you know, if, if you're struggling with understanding that or maybe you're just going through some things in your own mind, there's, you've been buying into a lot of lies and accusations uh, and you just want someone to pray with, some of our folks will be down front following the service. Come down, they'll pray with you. But, um, you know, Peter writes this letter to Christians in the first century who were not only dealing with the common trials of life, right, but they're also being persecuted by Rome. And now Peter says, oh yeah, and by the way, you have a spiritual predator hunting you. And then he turns around and says, so be people of hope. Like, what? Hope? What? So as he ends the letter, next week we're going to take a look at how he ends the letter on a, on a, on a hopeful note. And, and really, how can it be that in the midst of suffering and spiritual attack, all these things, that we, how can we be a people of hope? We're going to talk about that next week, okay? So make sure you come back. And um, in the meantime, I hope you have a great day with your family, with friends, whatever you have planned. Enjoy it. And uh, let, me, let me pray for you. Oh, yeah, by the way, dads, don't forget the root beer. Yeah. <laughs> it's an important deal. So let me pray for you. And so now, Lord, I pray that... Um, as we leave this place, we would go, um, not in fear, but we would go courageously, but we would be alert. We'd be informed. And we would be strategic. And we would stand firm in the faith and the truth of your grace in our lives and the truth of your love that can never fail. And uh, may we find true hope in that. And as we live our lives with joy because of it, may we point people to you the creator God who loves them, and to Jesus who died for them. And now may your, your hand of grace and peace and courage and rest be on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.